The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. As most of you hopefully know by now, this podcast is really just an excuse for me to sit down and have conversations with individuals inside the wealth management industry, pushing it forward in unique and interesting ways. Uh, Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Carter Gibson, the leader, M&A Solutions, Succession Planning, and Protection Plans at LPL Financial. Carter, thanks very much for joining us. David, it's great to be here and and great to talk about one of the hot topics out there in the market today, M&A and succession planning. M&A and succession planning is indeed a hot topic. I don't think there's a day that goes by that we don't see another story about one advisory firm buying another advisory firm, joining together with an aggregator or a, a larger team. It's flowing. So before we get into it, why don't you just give us a sense of where you sit and where you and your team sit in the LPL ecosystem and what your responsibilities are there? Absolutely. Yeah, happy to. So if if you think about LPL and what we've been trying to do or the evolution of our services over the last several years is really find ways to step in and help advisors run extraordinary businesses and to take as much of the work on from them as we can so they can spend the time with their clients and spend the time leading and growing their businesses. And so part of that evolution has been building out these different business services, um, including M&A and succession planning. And so what my team seeks to do is really be that trusted professional expert uh, for advisors and help them go realize their goals, whether it's growth for M&A, whether it's uh, planning for their eventual legacy and finding that right partner, um, or or just any other aspects that they may need in M&A and succession planning. And we do that all day, every day. Uh, So I'm really excited just for my team that you know, we get to go out and help all these great advisors go, go really achieve their goals in an in a area that's typically been an, uh, something that they didn't have great support in, right? If you're a business owner, you're wearing all these different hats um, and you can't be expected to be an expert in everything, especially something like M&A or succession planning, where you may only do that once or twice in your, in your whole career, um, but we do it every day. And so it's really exciting to get out there and bring that professional support for our advisors. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, and definitely a need, as you say, I mean, independent advisors, I guess there are consultants out there and there are some folks who, who can advise on M&A, but uh, it's, it's, it's spotty still, I think, for a lot of them. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really? There's a lot of consulting out there in, yeah. in the industry, which is great, um, but it's also nice to have someone at your home base, right? So LPL being your broker, dealer, and custodian, they can help you with all the nuts and bolts and, and the planning from end to end, not just for a transaction or even for just a specific event. Sure. For someone uh, sitting adjacent to the industry, as you say, we have seen the rise of M&A in the RIA space, in the independent advisory space, take off dramatically in the past few years. I think every year has been another record year for M&A in the industry. Uh, no matter who you talk to, I, I think all numbers point that way. Uh, what's driving it? What's driving this M&A activity why the flurry, why the pace, uh, why the ever-expanding multiples that seem to be being paid for firms? What's going on? What's driving this activity? Yeah, absolutely. We're in the middle of a massive industry dynamic here, which I think we're all aware of, but just to state some of the numbers that we see out there, looking at Cerule or the other reports, um, something like a third of all financial advisors are going to be retiring over the next decade. So you're looking at 100,000 plus advisors that are going to need to find a way to transition their business. 
And then beneath that, right, um, most of them don't have a great partner or someone that they've identified as that great partner to be the exit plan. Um, so if you, again, reading the industry report, something like a third of advisors have a written succession plan. And even those that have a written succession plan, less than that third um, believe it's something that will really get executed at the end of the day. And so that's creating a lot of opportunity um, on both sides, right? One, we've got to make sure that we give those uh, legacy-oriented advisors that great outcome that they deserve after running their business and serving their clients for so long. But to do that, we really need to have great buyers out there in the marketplace. And uh, the evolution that we've seen, especially over the last several years with the entrance of private equity money, of the, the growth of these consolidators and large aggregators, um, as well as even groups like myself, where we, we're trying to step in and help support this, this need on both sides. Um, it's, it's just been really, really interesting to see the growth of M&A. And it, to your point, it's accelerated every single year. Um, we don't see that slowing down um, because the advisor, you know, the average age out there is approaching 60. Uh, they're, they're not getting any younger and they're still going to need to do the planning at some point because they will have to transition. And how do you see the dynamic playing out? Are there enough buyers for all these sellers that are looking to monetize their practices? Oh, it's really interesting. Yes. If you look out there, I think you hear numbers quoted. Sometimes there's 30 or 40 or 50 buyers, maybe more for every single seller. So I don't think it's, there's not enough buyers. Uh, the challenge is finding the right buyer. Um, so, you know, we could show up and have 50 people come bid on your practice, but that doesn't mean that those are 50 great partners for you. And so it all comes down to helping uh, the, the seller and also preparing the buyer so that they can they can meet and figure out, you know, do we have a cultural match here? Um, do I approach the way that I run my business the same that you may approach the way you run your business and how I serve my clients, maybe the kind of clients that I serve. And so it's really about finding the right partner. That's the challenge. Yeah. And do you all make a distinction between succession planning and sale planning. Is there a difference there? I mean, I think as these firms, independent firms grow larger, uh, right? They become professionally managed businesses uh, and maybe a succession plan isn't really what they're looking for, but they're looking to grow with uh, capabilities that can only be really accessed by uh, joining or selling to mm -hmm. a larger entity. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and I think, you know, depending on what you're talking about with succession planning, exit planning, continuity planning, the main thing is really just the planning aspect of it, right? So, so to your point, it will be different depending on the kind of practice you have. If you're you know, a sole proprietor, that's going to look different than if you're more of an enterprise or an ensemble level group where you've got other partners there in your firm. Um, but the, at the beginning of it, it's all planning. And so it's really about how do you determine what are the goals outcomes, objectives that you're trying to work towards as a business owner and a leader, and then making sure that you have the planning that can support you um, for the eventual exit, whether that's a sale or a transition or otherwise, um, but also that interim planning to what we call protection at LPL, uh, where, you know, let's say you have that unplanned event happens, you know, knock on wood, you get hit by the, the proverbial bus mm -hmm. and what happens to your business and how, how do you maintain that continuity of client support? And so it's all about the planning. And on that protection planning front, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but just a small sidetrack, mm -hmm. there's a regulatory element there, right? I mean, I, I, have we heard of the SEC uh, becoming a little bit more aggressive in terms of looking at RIA's protection plans in this way? Uh, I, I mean, the SEC and, and all you know, the regulatory bodies, they're all definitely looking more closely at a number of different factors. So I wouldn't pick on this one in particular saying, hey, this is a hot topic item. But I'd say like anything, it just comes back to that planning, right? You want to make sure that you're planning to transition your business or maintain the continuity of your business in a way that's you know, regulatorily compliant. And that's why getting that professional support and doing the proper planning ahead of time 
that that's uh, it's key to success there because we've seen you know a number of instances right where that planning is not in place and the worst happens um, and that just creates all kinds of challenges uh, at, at a time that's really really stressful and important for that advisor or their family to be focused on maybe medical or health needs and not focused on hey how do I figure out how to either monetize or transition my business it's it's just uh, that that planning is just so key and crucial. Yeah, I mean, it seems you're you think about this with your own family, right? Uh, uh, you know, you have insurance and and plan for contingencies, risk management. It seems that's what advisors should be focused on with their own clients, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's exactly that kind of planning that they do for their clients every day. Um, that we want to make sure that they're helped and supported in doing that planning for themselves. And and just like anything else, the the more you plan, uh, the better your outcome will be. And the earlier that you plan, the better that your outcome will be because you have more time to adjust and define and and get prepared for for whatever that outcome may be. Do you think that advisors are giving enough uh, runway for their succession plans? Uh, or is this the sort of thing still, right, which is what we used to hear all the time, that advisors mm-hmm. waited to the last minute before they mm-hmm. you know, thought about, well, I guess I got to gussy this place up to sell it now. You know, Are advisors getting better at building that off-ramp, giving themselves enough roadway to, to do it effectively? You know, I, I think we're, we're seeing a, a significant increase in the conversations that we see over here um, with my team on advisors that are trying to go through that planning process. And I don't think it was so much that advisors just weren't doing the planning. It's just they didn't have a great outcome or a clear path to go work towards, right? If you're an independent advisor, sole practitioner, and you're in the middle of Iowa, you know, it may be harder to find someone there that, that's actually going to be that great transition partner than if you're, say, in New York City, where there's, you know, probably a thousand other financial advisors near that you could potentially be connected with. And so I think it's more about how, how did we create that ecosystem and that openness across LPL or, or just where, wherever those advisors may be so that they can identify those right partners easier um, and then have that clear support to go execute something like a succession plan or a, a eventual practice sale. Um, because again, come back to that, that comment about advisors wearing a thousand hats. Um, you know, If you're busy serving clients every day, trying to deal with market volatility, run your business, manage your employees, grow your practice. And then on top of that, you say, hey, and by the way, you need to go find that person to sell your business to. It's, it's a lot. So it really comes down to just creating clear roadmaps and then facilitating uh, that, that matchmaking, so to speak. So one of the things that we hear a lot about is the fuel that's fired a lot of these this activity is the private equity money, mm. uh, outside money, minority sure. investors have come into the space. Uh, they've really, I think, recognized wealth management as good, sticky revenue, sure. uh, good margins. Uh, so there's a lot of investors circling around. How has that kind of fueled this? And is it excessive or is it opening up new opportunities? What's your view? Yeah, no. So I think what you highlighted there is it's, it's taken uh, a long time for maybe more of the banking traditional finance side to figure out that the, the wealth management business is actually a great business. Um, where in the past, you know, back my my experience back two decades ago, I did commercial lending. I actually banked some financial advisors, so I, I've been there and done that. Um, but it, it was really challenging. And but when you look at the business, right, you have really strong recurring revenues. You have incredible client stickiness and engagement um, and, and long-term growth, right? So it just it speaks to the wonderful businesses that, that our, our advisors have built. Um, and now the capital is catching up to that, right? So to your point, you're seeing private equity money come in in much more significant ways, um, 
different other options. Maybe it's minority investors or large aggregators or consolidators. So there's just a lot more options out there in the market now, which I think is a good thing, um, right? Because that creates competition in the marketplace that also gets it by better options or, or just at least other options rather than in the past. You know, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, you pretty much had sale. That was your only way to monetize your business. And there really wasn't much in the way of growth capital, where now there's a number of different avenues for an advisor to either you know, get capital to grow um, or to, to monetize their business in part or in full. And so I think I view it more as uh, an opportunity for advisors. Now, with that opportunity does come complexity, right? So it's not just um, now like, hey, do I, do I just take that bank loan? It's like, well, if I'm going to bring in a minority partner or think about a different capital structure, you really have to understand the details. So it's, it's not just the understand the details of the transaction, um, but understand like, hey, you know, who is my partner? Uh, how do they think about growth? What are their goals and objectives? You know, am I aligned to that? What's their time horizon? You know, all these other considerations that maybe it was simpler in the past when you only had the one capital option, but at least you have more options. Now you just get really clear on the details and make sure you're aligned as a business owner with, with whoever your capital partner may be. Let's say that I'm an advisor in the LPL network, uh, mm-hmm. independent advisor uh, in the mm-hmm. LPL network. And uh, I've, I've kind of hit that wall of, you know, that plateau of what, 300, 400, million. Uh, and I'm looking to make the next step. And as you say, there are plenty of folks around who are willing to invest in my business. Uh, will you help them understand the uh, cap tables and the investment structure and the, the obligations? And, and what, what does that look like from, mm-hmm. from your perspective? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly one of the components where we want to show up, whether that's the growth of capital, uh, the legacy planning side, and just helping advisors understand their options and also consult with them on, on how they could go about approaching them. Um, and one of the other things that, that's really interesting about LPL is we actually are also a capital provider. Um, so if you look across, whether it's advisors transitioning to LPL, growth lending, uh, acquisitions, succession planning, you know, LPL is funding you know, several hundred million dollars a year in support of advisors. And so that's another place too, where we can provide options from an LPL perspective for our advisors to help them, again, whether it's growth oriented or whether it's executing that succession plan and providing the capital needed to get the, the transaction part of it done. Um, there's a lot of options out there. Um, and we want to make sure that we're providing some good options to help support the advisors as well. Do most advisors or many advisors or any advisors <laughs> go into this process too optimistic about the value of their business? And are many disappointed when the numbers get crunched and the, the uh, spreadsheets are opened and the trunk is opened or however, whatever analogy you want to use right. uh, and, and find that maybe the business is not as valuable as they thought it was? Right. Yeah. And that, that's a funny topic because it's uh, it, probably most uh, conferences that I participate in or groups, price multiple is, is typically the very first question that gets asked because you see some just eye-popping numbers out there in the market today. Mm-hmm. And 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 it, it, I mean, it's exciting, right? Like if you're a business owner and you've built a business and you're seeing these massive multiples out there, that, that just gets you really pumped for the business that you built. It, it comes back to that earlier conversation of just you got to really understand the outcomes and objectives, right? So if you want to sell your business and walk away, that's going to be a different valuation than if you're sticking around for a number of years or you're going to help drive growth in the business um, and, and what kind of business that's going to look like afterwards, right? Like if you've built, like, you know, let's just say I had my own practice and it was Carter Gibson Wealth Management, um, you know, is that brand going to stick around? Am I still going to be the guy, so to speak, or the leader? Um, so there, there's a number of different components that can drive value. 
And so I think it's not so much disappointment, but it's more of like an education process of going through and saying, hey, like these things drive value. Um, these things can raise the multiple. These things can reduce the multiple. And just, again, making really sure that the advisor understands the outcome that they want. Because if your goal is like, hey, you know, I'm 70 years old and I, I really want to get out of this business. Um, and, and then you go and say, but I want the very highest price. Well, the very highest price is you're sticking around for five or 10 years and driving growth and potentially rolling over some of your, your own equity into this new company. So you just got to be clear about that. And so I'd say most of the time, once we go through that due diligence process with an advisor, um, it's much more clear on the outcome that they want. And then but can the transaction or the monetization support that outcome? And I think we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of happy advisors out there once we do get to that point. So listeners will want to know, so I have to ask, uh, can you give a ballpark range of multiples that you're seeing in the... Uh... Well, that's what, so I'm, I'm not going to prognosticate there or, <laughs> or share the numbers because again, they just, they're too shiny, right? I mean, you see double digit EBITDA multiples out there and, and, and that's, that's great. Like the businesses are really valuable, um, but just realize, right, that it depends on the outcome for both parties, the buyer and the seller that drives that multiple. Yeah. And this is why I, I ask about that uh, roadway question, because uh, I think a lot of advisors tend to wait too long as mm -hmm. in and, and, and mm -hmm. the, the book starts to, uh, you know, it goes into uh, depletion mode rather than accumulation right. mode. And, right. and, uh, the, and you're, that's probably not the time to really look for maximum value in a practice, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just all those things that drive value, the longer that you have in the planning to, to maximize the value, the better. And, and one thing I'll say too, while we're on the value point is what, what I've really appreciated talking to at this point, hundreds and hundreds of advisors about their exit planning and M&A is most of them aren't actually seeking to maximize the valuation. Right. So the, the benefit of going through something like MA is you can get a competitive offer, but very rarely do we see the advisor say, like, I'm going with that offer because it's highest. So they're they're much more concerned with is this a great outcome for my clients? Um, and at the end of the day, they want to make sure that that, that new uh, firm, the new advisor is really going to provide that continuity of support. So the MA process can give them a nice competitive offer, but but what's great is that most advisors aren't seeking to maximize the valuation to the last dollar. Are most of these succession planning transactions still structured the way they used to be with maybe a three or five payout plan, keeping the advisor around and mm -hmm. various capacities for that duration of time as they kind of ease them out the door? How, how, how are these things structured these days? How has it changed? Yeah, I, I think it's the same as earlier where there's just a lot more options now, right? To, to your point in the past, you typically had a full sale and that transitioned over a few years. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, significantly more of what we'd call like that sell and stay option, right? Where the advisors are sticking around for significantly longer than what they would have in the past. And also potentially transitioning ownership over a longer period of time as well. So not just doing a full 100% buyout and then sticking around for a few years, um, but maybe transitioning equity or ownership to a junior partner or, or another partner uh, over a five or 10 year period. So I think that both the time horizon has extended and the structures uh, have, have evolved as well to just have some more options there. Because what we're also seeing is not just that, that uh, legacy or succession-oriented advisor trying to go facilitate their planning, but also the, on the junior advisor side, right? Like if you have an advisor that's mid-career, that, that is a high-quality candidate for, for long-term growth and being your partner. And there's so many advisors on the legacy side looking for that kind of advisor mm -hmm. that, that we're seeing the, the succession planning uh, extend much longer so they can call it lock in that junior advisor so they know they have a path to the eventual full ownership. 
ownership. Yep. From your vantage point at LPL, diminutive here, but but playing matchmaker between advisory firms, what trips people up the most? Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. what is the thing that will derail a potential deal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so we love to look at it through three lenses, any transaction. And so so we like to think that there, there's a financial lens, like, you know, how, how is this, the economics of this all going to work together? There's an operational lens, like, okay, well, now we're going to combine two businesses together or transition a business. Like, how do we think about, you know, running and operating the business and serving the clients? And then there's a third lens, which doesn't get as much time, but it's that emotional lens, right? Of like, you're going to have a buyer um, that's now going to be the leader of a larger organization um, and, and serving more clients and potentially different kind of clients than what they may have served in the past. And on the seller side, you know, you have someone who's long tenured, built a great business, been the leader and the figurehead and the growth person. And, and now they're, they're no longer that. They're transitioning out and they're, they're more of a, a mentor or something like a chairman of Murata, or they're just retiring. And so I think where we see a lot of the challenges is actually in that op- that uh, emotional lens. Because if you think about the financial side, that's just math. Like we can put the math together. Um, my team's very, very good at that. Um, that. That's just more of the core banking side of the world. Mm. Um, the operational side, you know, you, you typically do have construction and process by the time you get to the end of your career or the buyer at least has probably built those capabilities to support the MA. So again, it, it comes down to that emotional side. That's the side that's hard to manage because it's, it, there's a good question to be asked of like, okay, so from a success standpoint as a seller, what is the day after the transaction look like? Like, mm-hmm. And the ones that you see have really clear vision for that, those are the transactions, I think, that, that have a really high degree of success and um, satisfaction on the back end, right? So if I'm talking to someone and they're, they're super excited about you know, going and spending time with the family or their grandkids, or they're going to take that trip they've always wanted to, or maybe they're going to say, hey, I'm going to spend a lot more time mentoring you know, junior advisors, or I want to volunteer and do financial literacy. Like those advisors that have that clear plan on the back end, th- those are the deals that go really well. So yeah, it brings me up to this big spongy question that I always have about culture, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how to, to make culture work in a uh, succession plan or an M&A. And I, I've never really been able to define culture. I don't know yeah. what it really is. Uh, you know, how do you guys approach that? I, I guess it's really only through discussion and talking and spending time together that that you recognize it or not. I, I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. T- time is your friend there, right? It's that, that old adage, right? Like, would you want to share a beer with this person? Or would you want to be stuck on an airplane for six hours with this person? Um, it, it really comes down to there, there's a, a level of uh, trust and, and confidence just in someone that you feel a camaraderie with. Um, so I think from, from a cultural aspect, you know, I, I would say it's more of like the philosophy of how you run your business and how you support your clients. Um, and, and maybe also like how you lead your own internal employees as part of that running your business. And so what you're looking for there, right, is, is a practice with a good cultural fit, meaning that it's like you have similar philosophies, right? So if you're, maybe you've built your business on being super technical about the, the portfolio management aspect, right? And, and then this, the other party in the transaction, they, they built their uh, practice on a totally different philosophy of serving clients, right? Like maybe they're just focused on overall wealth management or generating retirement income. So, so the way that those two advisors serve and support their clients is probably going to be different. And actually their clients are probably used to a different kind of service. So you could have a mismatch there just from a client perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you could also 
have, you know, from an operational perspective, like maybe you have more of like a pod structure inside your practice, right? Where you have different service teams that serve advisors, where maybe the other side has a specific advisor or a specific support person that's assigned to every single account. And the clients may experience that differently, right? So it's, it's all about really like the philosophy of how you run your business, how you serve your clients, and then how do those things line up? Um, one other area that we always want to explore too is things like how do you feel about growth over time? How do you feel about the planning for your own internal employees? Um, because what we found too, again, with advisors is not only do they have great care for their clients, they also have great care for their own internal staff and employees that have helped them build those great businesses. Yes. When you, and this may be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask <laughs> uh, you have all these advisors in, in your network, uh, you're helping them find succession partners, you're helping them find M&A partners, also mm-hmm. in the network. As you open up your database there with all of your uh, firms, is there a column for culture? Uh, you know, how do you, or is that something that you do just by spending time with mm-hmm. these people knowing mm-hmm. kind of, you know, well, intuitively, I know that that firm's not really going to work out with this firm, but intuitively, I know that one over there maybe is a better fit. Or is there some kind of formal way that this is inside your database? Yeah, definitely both, right? So you think of like having profiles of the advisors and their practices, right? So it's all about, for us, like we have to do a really good job of understanding their story and, and, and part of that too being their culture. And so that way, because, you know, like we said earlier, you could have 50 buyers show up on a transaction. That doesn't mean it's 50 great buyers. You want to make sure that you have the right partners and you're, you're nearing those conversations down really fast. And so part of that is the work we do at the beginning side with our buyer support, where we're trying to go really understand what they're looking for, how their practice operates, what makes for a great fit for them. And that way, when we go engage on the, on the seller side of the, of the transaction or seller side of the, the process, that we can really quickly narrow it down and identify those advisors um, that, that would be the best fit perspective. And then to, then to start facilitating those conversations, right? Because I'd say before you even get to talking about the actual numbers, right? You need to have that, that uh, well, right now it's WebEx to WebEx or Zoom to Zoom, um, but you need to have that face-to-face conversation just to really get a sense for the other person and, and how they're running and leading their businesses. And will you guys at LPL sit in on those conversations or do you let the advisors go off and hash it out themselves? Uh, it's both. Um, I think typically we do serve and support, um, especially the earlier conversations, but there is, there is a level at some point where you want to have that person to person, leader to leader conversation. Um, so, but we're, we're privy to, to most of what goes on in those transactions again, because we're with the advisors too, if it's just, they don't know how to go through this whole process. Right. right? And so we want to be there and support the entire process and help facilitate whatever needs to happen so that, that we can, we can move through those lenses, right. The financial, the operational, emotional. But at some point is at some point it comes, you two go out, you know, you two go out and work this out together. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, right. Like they're, they're the business owner, they're the business leader and, and they're going to make that call. It's, it's our job to get them the right options, the best partners um, and, and help see everything through down a roadmap. So we've been talking about this in terms of succession planning, the, the wider universe of M&A, I, mm-hmm. guess. Uh, I think a lot of advisors, a lot of advisory firms are approaching M&A with the notion of not succession planning as much as gaining new skills or new businesses, uh, you know, to help their clients, right? So right. maybe I'm not good at, uh, you know, a municipal bond strategy, or maybe I don't have estate planning or whatever. Maybe there's a opportunity to merge with a firm that does have those strengths. Absolutely. Are you seeing that more and more? You know, how is that playing into to what you do? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You, this, this called capabilities based acquisitions is definitely an area that we're seeing a lot more expansion on. You typically see that obviously at a larger firm size, right? Where you have more value you can get by spreading it across a, a client base. Um, so, and things that you highlight, right? Like portfolio management capabilities, tax and estate planning capabilities, maybe some more specific things related to retirement issues. Um, so, so absolutely, we're seeing some of those firms bring in those specific type of acquisition opportunities because they can then spread it across a very large uh, base with their own existing client groups. That's, that's definitely a factor now. So you've brought uh, the two firms together. They've uh, made the deal. You've helped them broker the deal. Everyone's happy. What about after the close? What are some of the best practices for integrating these two wealth management firms together? Where do you see that either go bad or you know, what are some of the things that need to be done after the deal mm. to ensure everyone walks away happy? Absolutely. And that's what, I mean, uh, not to beat the dead horse here, but it comes back to the planning, right? It's like great outcomes are supported by great planning and long-term planning. And so it's really just making sure that you've planned uh, and, and you've uh, visualized and you feel great about whatever that outcome is on the buyer or the seller side. Like we said of that, you know, the day after the transaction, whether you're the seller thinking about how do I feel now and, and this in this role um, to the buyer, okay, and how do I feel in this, you know, role of having the larger entity and, and having more clients that I've got to go serve and support. So it really comes down to that that planning. Like that, we cannot understate the planning aspect of it. Then, then I think on, and then really to that planning, then it's just being really clear on the roles and responsibilities and the outcomes you're trying to drive and in what's the rough time frame you're trying to drive it, right? So if you just go, hey, we're going to we're gonna merge firms, I'm going to sell my practice to you and I'll be done in a year. Like if that's the extent of what you expect, right? You can probably expect that coming up is going to be some uh, differences of opinion, uh, buyer and seller on how things should be going down. So it's, it's really important, again, coming back to financial financial, operational, emotional, just to make sure you've, you've defined out what does success look like and, and what are the, the roles and responsibilities that, that I own, I'm responsible for, uh, and, and then when I need to be completing those things. That, that's, the, that's the real key thing. I think some of the common roadblocks you see, right, are like, I, I think sometimes it's underestimated how much time you'll be spending with clients with these transactions, both um, on the buyer side, your existing clients, um, as well as obviously all these new clients. Um, so you could think about maybe you're engaging with your clients quarterly. Well, guess what? Like when you're bringing a brand new client into your firm uh, via a transaction, uh, you're probably going to be seeing that client four or five times or speaking with them four or five times in the, in the space of a month or two, uh, not over the space of a year. So you just got to do proper planning for, for even in the, uh, the initial phases of the transaction of your engagement with your clients is going to go up significantly. This will be a softball question, and it, it sounds like I'm, I'm setting you up for a, for an easy an easy hit here. But uh, you know, the sometimes the problem with advisors transitioning or or buying another firm is the repapering process and getting mm. outside of the the ecosystem that you're used to and transitioning all your clients over to another ecosystem. How big of an advantage is it to stay inside the LPL ecosystem when you're making these deals? Absolutely. There, there's level of frictions for clients and advisors that can that can impact what we call like the retention right of the clients. 
Um, and so when, when you have to go through a repapering event, that obviously creates more opportunities for clients to leave or at least to consider other options. And so obviously, if you're within the network, um, th- then, it's, then it's easier. You have less concern there. What I would say, though, which is really interesting, is like that advisors have built really great relationships with their clients over, over many times, decades, right? And so like we see pretty good retention across the spectrum, whether it's internal or external um, to LPL. And so I'd say it's more about not so much like is the repapering process hard, but just like how how well can you communicate with your clients and how good of a cultural fit did you find to this transaction where it's just it becomes very clear to the clients that the obvious answer is that I would be going to this new advisor or continuing with the firm, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think it, it comes back to that planning um, and then and then making sure that you have that great fit. And then I think the results uh, will be there for the advisors. Uh, final question, uh, and this is just to get a scope of, of what we're talking about and the scope of the activity, because we've all seen the numbers. Uh, LPL, what, 20,000 practices uh, sure. in, the, in the ecosystem. Any, can you give us any idea of like what percentage are thinking about this or, or are involved in, in some stage of, uh, mm-hmm. of the M&A or succession planning process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the great thing about LPL, right, is that we are the largest network of advisors. And so uh, with that, too, we also we mirror the demographics, right? So like if the average age of the advisor in the industry is like 59, um, that's roughly similar to LPL, right? So they have the same sort of planning needs and time horizons that you see out there in the industry. Um, But what's really, really special about LPL is just because we have this really large network internally, we're already talking to our advisors. We deeply understand their businesses today, right? Like I don't have to go out and get up to speed on, on this practice or or, or on how they serve their clients, or even on who they are and what their story is, right? Like we have, we have amazing relationships with the clients here at LPL or the advisors here at LPL as our clients. Um, and so, so that enables us to move more quickly and also find higher quality outcomes for those advisors. So I'd say the, the planning is, is very similar to what you see in the industry. I just think there's additional benefits to being here at LPL where we can, within our call it family of advisors, um, help help really find a great the number you were mentioning. We can find that that great cultural fit, that great partner, um, that great either it's growth or succession, whatever side you're on. Um, we can find that here with LPL. You don't want to hazard a guess at uh, how many of those, what percentage of those twenty thousand are in some mm-hmm. process of transition. Oh, I mean, I'd say it's probably similar to the industry, right? So if a third of the advisors in the industry are thinking about retiring, that's that's probably similar to what we're seeing at LPL. And so it's just it speaks to that that uh, large need and opportunity out there. Yeah, fantastic. I, Carter, this has been great. I, I appreciate it. It's an education for me. Uh, it's a dynamic part of the industry that you're involved in. And like you say, I don't think it's going to slow down. So thanks very much for sharing the story with us. Yeah, Dave, it was great to be here and, and great, great to talk m and advisors. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.